morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm a small groups pastor. It's good to see y'all. I'm used to kind of on like this Pass the Connect cards. Yeah, I got that in my head since that's the same thing I say every week. But if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 12. Uh, we'll be looking at that this week. I guess the first thing that I need to do is apologize as we get started. I don't know. I'm, I'm real sports. I love sports. Anybody NBA fans? Anybody? Two. Oh, it's good. Um, so one of, the, one of the controversies this past year with the NBA is that any time LeBron James was coming to a town to play, all the ticket prices got jacked way up, right? Like triple the amount that they normally cost, and then he would get ready to they would get to the game, he'd save up money, you would be there, and then he would take the night off. So, sorry, y'all got me instead of David today. So, but we're not we're not offering any refunds or anything like that. You just gotta just gotta deal with it. Um, my my wife and I, we were talking, kind of preparing for this today, and I'm just kind of going through the week, and I was explaining uh, to her, you know, I was going to be preaching this Sunday, and my six-year-old son, who is 100% just like his mom, he looks just like his mom, and he has the same terrible attitude as her, um, but I was explaining to him that you're going to miss Sunday, I'm preaching on Sunday, you're going to miss it, because he has a, a baseball game in Chattanooga, don't judge me, um, but he looks at me, he says, you mean we get a day off? I was like, oh, you're six, and you're already getting that. So at some point, when he's 16, there's going to be a significant come-to-Jesus meeting there because uh, he's already a smart aleck at, at six, so we got problems. But, no, all joking aside, I, I appreciate David giving me the opportunity to talk. It, it happens once or twice a year. I look forward to it, and I enjoy it, so um, we'll, we'll do what we can do. But that's my apology. If you're expecting David, you get me. And while we're saying that, his, his basketball game is nowhere near what LeBron James' game is. I feel like I can beat David uh, pretty easily. But don't tell him. He's not, I couldn't say that at 9. He was in the room. Um, flip over to First Samuel 12, and we'll talk about that uh, for a few minutes. Now, we've been working through this, and what we've seen as Samuel's been called to, uh, to or excuse me, as Saul's been called as king, we've seen this progression happen. He meets, he meets Samuel. And Samuel anoints him as king and then gives him these three signs to kind of confirm that anointing as he's going forward. And then all of Israel meets and they draw lots and they come to, come to Saul. He's hiding in the baggage, but they still come to Saul <clears throat> as we go there. And then finally, last week, we talked about Saul getting this message that a town was under attack. And so he sends out this very gruesome uh, recruiting propaganda of sitting out a slaughtered bull out of these places and says, come and fight with me or the same thing's going to happen to you. And he's going to liberate the city. And so what we see in the last three weeks is we've seen Saul step into each part of his calling as king. He's been anointed by God. He's been approved by the leadership. And now he's stepped into the military aspect of being a king. And so all three of those things have happened. And what we've done now this week, we've got to the point of handing off, of handing the baton, right? Samuel's been the leader. And at this point, he's going to take leadership over Israel, and he's going to take it and hand it to Saul. And so this has been said to be Samuel's farewell speech. I'm not 100% sure that's, that's accurate because I don't see Samuel's not leaving the narrative. He's just changing his role or embracing a, a different role than he had before. So, um, again, you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel 12. I'm going to read the first 1 through 5. Samuel said to all Israel, 
I have listened to everything you said to me, and I've set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make, a, to make my eyes shut? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated us or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Now, so Samuel is, is handing it off. He, first thing he's doing is kind of setting the stage for what he's going to talk about. This is, kind of, this is the longest passage that Samuel speaks in Scripture. And what he's doing to start is he wants to acknowledge there's a, there's a very real contrast between him and Eli, the, the, the judge before him. If we look at Eli back a few weeks ago, he didn't recognize the wickedness of his sons, and so his sons were, were killed in battle, and he died as a result of that. And in this case, Samuel's recognizing, my sons are wicked. And so he's demoting his entire family here. He's saying, they're not going to have leadership with, uh, of Israel. He says, they're with you, meaning they're in the crowd. They're not up on whatever he's standing on in his position of leadership or authority, but they're in the crowd. And so he's demoting his entire family. We're not only going, giving up our leadership as judge, we're becoming one of the people here. And so we see this happen as, a, again, a stark contrast between him and Eli. But then he goes from there, and Samuel puts himself on trial in front of all of Israel. Samuel is the defendant. He's going to defend himself in front of everybody. The people are the prosecutors, and God and Saul are the witnesses who have some authority. And basically what Samuel's saying is, what, if, what have I taken from you that I, did, I wasn't supposed to take? Where is the bribe? Where have I stole from you? Where have I taken anything? And all of Israel, as God is their witness, says, you have taken nothing, you've done nothing. And so it made me wonder, kind of a couple of things. Like, as I'm reading this, I realize is the people in Israel at the time, they're not very smart. Because in chapter 8, Samuel gives this description of what the king will do, right? He says the king's going to take your ox, he's going to take, he's going to take your children, he's going to take the best of your crops, he's going to make your, your, your daughters bakers and servants. And he ends that passage in Samuel 8, in verse 17, he says, and you will become his slave. And I thought that was interesting to see, that Samuel's standing up there saying, I haven't taken anything that's not mine. I haven't taken anything from you. I haven't oppressed you at all. And they're saying, give us a king who's going to make us a slave. And so I felt like, as I'm reading that, that you kind of already see they don't get it. They don't get what it's like to be a child of God in this. Remember, God said these are his people, and they're rejecting God, and they're choosing this new king. And so Samuel's driving home the point that he's innocent, and then he's going to move on to the point of putting Israel on trial. If you look at verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, brought your ancestors up out, who brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord, as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. 
But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and, and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that, <clears throat> so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that, that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. So Samuel kind of flips everything around on him. You found me faultless, so now Samuel's going to flip it and put them on trial. The, the whole host of Israel is going to be put on trial here. And basically what Samuel wants to do is to reinforce the fact that you've been in rebellion against God because you've chosen a king. And so he gives them this list of righteous acts. And he tells every time that you have cried out to the Lord, you've humbled yourselves, and you've cried out and repented, God has sent a deliverer to you. He, he goes back and he looks, at, he looks at Aaron and Moses and he gives the list of five others. And I think what he's doing there is comparing like, they're equal. Samuel is equal to, to Aaron and Moses because he's delivering them. He's bringing God's deliverance to them even now that they're in the promised land. And so what we see is that there's this cycle that, that's created. This cycle where the Israelites are going to sin. They repent. God sends a judge. And they, then they receive deliverance. It works for them, Right? Everything, every time Israel turns her back on the Lord and then they repent, he sends someone to deliver them. And this process is working. He's their king. He's sending judges. And deliverance happens every single time. Well, this time we see a change in the, in the, in the structure, I guess. A change in the cycle. They sin. They're warned of their sin. They repent. But instead of asking for deliverance from the Lord, they ask for a king. We want, God has set us apart as his people, yet we want to be just like everybody else and have a king just like everybody else. And so what it says to me is what we see here is that they're relying on their own flesh to save them. They're not relying on the Lord. They're looking at a man to step in and deliver them instead of relying on the God who has consistently saved them. Even after repetitive sin, even after consistent sin, God has continued to be faithful to, to Israel. He's continued to go after him. And, and what we see is that these demands are met. God is going to send a deliverer every single time. He sends Saul here, and Saul delivers them at, at, um, from the Ammonites. But it's not a deliverance based on their demand. It's a deliverance based on the, re, the return to obedience of their hearts. God sends deliverance when we repent when we turn away from our sins and we run after him. And I think what Samuel is trying to explain to them is, yes, you've sinned, yes, you've turned, and now you put up this thing here. Last service we were talking about afterwards, and someone gave a word, said, What's, what is our king? What is the king that we rely on at this point? And so as we're moving through the service, just reflect on that, think about that. What's the king, what's the flesh that you put in the, in the way of deliverance, because the only thing that we're doing here, the only thing that Israel is doing, is putting distance between them and God. They're they're making the cycle wider, and they're making it bigger, and they're making it more difficult for them to connect. Until at some point, they completely lose sight of who God is and what He does. 
But Samuel as a prophet is not always negative. He's going to encourage. And so we look at verses 13 through 25. Now here's the king you've chosen. The one you ask for. The Lord has set the king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against the Lord, against his commands, and both of you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against the commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. It is not, is it not the wheat harvest? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realize that Realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all of our sins an evil asking for a king. Notice they didn't say, take the king back. They still want their king, but they're sorry for it. Do not be afraid, Samuel said. Samuel replied, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn, turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord, <clears throat> the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by falling, failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way, the, that, the good, <clears throat> the way that is good and right. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. So God has shown himself faithful each time. And, and Samuel is explaining this. And what he wants to do, and what Samuel's calling on God to do here is to show Israel his displeasure. And we look at this thunder and rain we don't think much about it here because it does it all the time. But for, for in Israel, this season, June, May, June, early July is, is the dry season. It just doesn't rain. If it rains, it is a miracle in those places. And it's important that it doesn't rain because it's the wheat harvest. During the wheat harvest, if it rains and it storms, there's a violent storm, it's going to destroy some of the crop. So what we see here is God showing his, his, his displeasure through the storm and there's also a punitive aspect to it. He's destroying some of their crops, but he's also, he's also restoring his people. See, he's looking at this, and they're coming to a place of repentance. And so when I look at this, I see God basically hitting the reset button for Israel. Yes, asking for this king is a sin. Yes, you're being obedient, but he says, I'm still going to bless it. And so he brings the Israelites to a point of repentance. They're in awe of the Lord. They're in awe of Samuel. And so they repent. And so he's starting the monarchy from a place of blessing, not a place of punishment. I think it's important to see that, that he's blessing something that was born out of sin, but he's still blessing it so that the Lord can start this monarchy in a place that it needs to be. He goes on to remind them of, his fa- of their fathers. This is the encouraging prophet part of Samuel. This is kind of that new role that we were talking about at the beginning. But he goes on to remind them, hey, look, your fathers, your ancestors rebelled against me as well. Every one of them turned their back, and every single time God restored them. Every single time God sent a redeemer or a, not a redeemer, a deliverer to them. And so he encouraged God's not going to abandon you now. You're his people. 
He has set you apart. And it's not because of anything that you've done that he's doing it. It's because of his character that he is going to restore Israel. It's not that they repent. It's because, because his character is that he's going to bless the people he's chosen. And he finally gives one last warning. He tells them, all this positive stuff, all these things are good. But if you continue to, eat, to do evil, things aren't going to be good. And the realization I came to was that Israel's problem wasn't all these nations that were surrounding them in war. That wasn't it. Because God's going to take care of that for them as long as they're obedient. Israel's problem is a disobedient heart. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless this monarchy as long as, as long as you're obedient to me and, obe- and your king is obedient to me as well. And by adding that extra layer, they've added an extra layer of obedience to go with it. See, the king is responsible for the behavior of the people, and the people are responsible for the behavior of the king. And either one of those who aren't obedient, Israel will be delivered in the hands of their enemies. And so I was taking all this stuff in. I'll be honest with you. At first, I struggled with what to talk about as we were talking about all these things. It's like, okay, none of this is relevant to us. And, you know, there's kings, and we don't have a king, and there's anointing and all this kind of stuff. And, and I kept praying about how this could speak to us. And the realization I came to is, is I believe that every one of us knows that we need help. I believe that every one of us knows we were, we're overwhelmed, we're mired in stuff, we need help. But I also believe that most of us think that we can work ourselves out of it. We can help ourselves. So I'm guilty of this. I've got a, I've got a three-year-old who for lack of a better term, is crazy. It's true. I mean, he, like, it, nothing surprises me with him. He's, he's active, to say the least. Um, you know, he's, like, every night, every morning we wake up, and he hasn't, you know, killed me in my sleep. It, I, I give, give thanks to the Lord. And I started grabbing all these books. Like, how do I, what do I do, right? He's nuts. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to deal with him. Timeout's not working. Spanking's not working. Putting in his room, he may build a bomb. That's not working. It's like I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. And I kept working harder and harder and harder as a parent to figure out how do I how do I get this one kid just to behave a little bit, right? Do I get one day without the daycare calling me saying he punched somebody? It's all I'm looking for. It's not. That's a low bar. And I kept reading. And I kept getting all these parenting books, and I talked to people and all this other stuff, and I realized that they don't know either. Like, every kid's different. Every kid's different, and I just decided at some point, i got to take this to the Lord. And am I more concerned? I was more concerned about his behavior than I was the condition of his heart. And that was the thing that, that I realized, is that I have to pray for him. I have to get into the Word. I have to, I have to, to shepherd his heart and point out his identity as a child of God not a child of mine. I wanted him to behave because of how it makes me look, not because it's what's good for him. And so that's kind of brought me to this idea here that everything we look at in 1 Samuel 12 is about identity. The Israelites lost their identity. God told them from early on, you're my people. I set you apart for this reason. You're my people. You're the people I favor and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And they said, that's great, but give us somebody else to lead us. Right? They lost their identity of being children of God, and they wanted to be like everybody else. 
They wanted to have their king. I started thinking about this, and I was struggling with it early this week, and just kind of went to the Lord in prayer, and he brought one specific story to mind of, of misidentification in the Bible. I was looking at John 4, and it's where Jesus is meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. And first of all, in just a few minutes, but Jesus goes to the well. He asks this woman for water in the middle of the day, which tells us one thing about her, is that she's not very well liked by her friends. Because women went to the well at 5 o'clock in the evening, not in the heat of the day. And so she's probably avoiding something to be, not be gossiped about or not be harassed by the other women. And so she, we know from early on that she's carrying this shame because she's rejected by her own people. But she's also carrying some kind of shame projected on her by the Jews because Jewish men or Jewish anyone didn't associate with Samaritan women. Jewish people would actually walk miles and miles out of their way not to come into contact with a Samaritan. And Jesus decides, I'm walking right on through, right in the middle. And so we have this encounter at the well, and he asks her for water. Give me some water. And she says, her response is, I'm a Samaritan woman. Another way of saying that, I'm not worthy of giving you water. I'm not worthy of this contact with you. You're here. He's here to deliver her. And she's saying, I'm a Samaritan woman. I don't deserve your deliverance. And so she's so mixed up in her own identity that she fails to recognize the identity of Jesus. She fails to recognize that she she has an opportunity to be delivered here. And so Jesus presses her on it. He presses and says, you know, had you asked me, I would have given you living water. Had you recognized who I am, I would have given you living water. And he says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. I'm not sure if she's lying, misleading, or what she's doing there. But Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband at all. And he says, and he looks at her again, give me water. And she says, what? you don't have anything to get water with. Are you, be- are you greater than our father Jacob? And I feel like Jesus was like, yeah, I am greater than your father Jacob. And so what we see, he's trying to offer her something. He's offering living water, and she keeps putting up roadblocks to accepting it. I'm a Samaritan woman. I'm living with a man that's not my husband. Are you better than Jacob or not? He keeps going on and on. She keeps going on and on with this. And And Jesus, I feel like, is standing there looking at her saying, I'm offering you living water. He knows all that stuff already. He tells her everything about herself. And he's saying, I know all your garbage. I know all your things. I know everything you're talking about here. And I'm still offering you living water. Eventually, he kind of gets through. But it made me think, when I first became a Christian, and some of you all have heard my story and my testimony. I became a Christian when I was 24 years old. And shortly after that, I don't know how much time after that, I was lying on my bed um, and kind of subtly get this picture of someone that I hurt. I get this picture of sin. I kind of dismiss it at first, and I toss and I turn, like try to go back to sleep. And then this other image comes of something that I had done, and then again something else. And then I get bombarded with these pictures of all the sins and all the people I was hurting. I couldn't sleep. I was wrestling with it, and I didn't go to the Lord with it for about seven hours. Smart, right? Finally, I flip over, flip over my Bible. I start praying. I said, Lord, you've got to reveal something to me. And I read this story. 
And I felt like at that moment he was saying, here's living water. I already knew all that. That's you holding on to all of that. Here's what, I'm, here's what I want to offer you. And it got this point for me, this peace just kind of came over me. Of, like, he doesn't care about that. And for the next 15 minutes, I slept really hard until my alarm went off and got up to go to work. But it was this peace that happened, this peace that came over me of, he doesn't care about the baggage that I'm dragging around with me everywhere. All he cares about is that he's offering me living water, and I have one of two answers. I can say yes or no. He's not going to accept anything else. He's not accepting, well, maybe. Well, but. Well, kind of. Well, what about this? And I feel like every time he looked at me, every time I brought something, or every time she brings something to him, he says, you can leave your shame at home. I know all of that. And so this morning, that may not resonate as far as, you, you may know Jesus already, but there's still something that you're not giving him. Right? He's offering living water, and you're taking sips, and he wants to take the hose and put it in your mouth and make you just drink it all in. And, but there's something that's keeping us from accepting that. There's something that's keeping us from engaging in that. And so I think what, what he's saying this morning is just say yes. Just say yes to that living water. Confess whatever that thing is. And he's going to say, I already know. Move on. And let's get into what really this is about. But also, there are two, another time to the story, another part to the story I want to, I want to bring up. Is this woman, she tells, you know, are you better, are you greater than Jacob? And she says, what, you know, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all this stuff to me. He'll explain this stuff. And Jesus looks at her. I kind of feel like he probably chuckled and said, hey. You're missing me. I'm right here. I am he who's speaking, who he is. And she can't contain herself. And she turns and she runs back into town and starts telling everybody she comes into contact with about this guy who just told her everything she'd ever done. You know, all the stuff that she had been hiding by going to the well at 5 o'clock or at 12 o'clock instead of 5, he tells her about and she uses that shame to become a testimony to himself. Her shame that she's hiding from becomes a testimony for how much Jesus loves her. I thought that was the part that just jumped out at me. It kind of just grabbed me and said, this is it. If I'm struggling with something, I'm going to take it to the Lord. Shame's not something for me. He dealt with that for me a while ago. doesn't mean I don't have other things that, that, that keep me from engaging with the Lord completely. But shame's not one of them. But he took her shame and said, this is a testimony to me. That's why I love Anytime I get a chance to speak, especially to high school kids when I, when I was a teacher, I always love to tell my story because it was full of shame. Couldn't do anything worse than what I've done. And so the restorative power of Jesus in that was my testimony for how great and how much he loved me. And so I couldn't help but tell that story. And some of you are saying, I go, yeah, this, doesn't, this isn't my thing. You're, not, you're missing me here. I've done this. I've already went through all of that. That's fine. But there is another step to this, and that's who are you bringing to the feet of Jesus? We all know someone who doesn't know who Jesus is. And even if we don't know someone, we all know a whole portion of the world that doesn't know who Jesus is. I'm reading this book called Dreams and Visions. And it's, it's kind of, it takes a little while for me to warm up to that kind of stuff. It's something I'm, I'm not 100% comfortable with, but I'm growing in that part. But this book, Dreams and Visions, is about... Muslims in the Middle East are having these dreams of Jesus, especially during Ramadan. 
that they're seeking God in this place, and Jesus is interrupting them in his dream, and he's revealing himself to them in dreams. And this one particular story I was reading was about this guy who was, he was, he was in school, was in, in seminary there. He was kind of the all-star student. He was the smartest guy. He, understand, he understood Islamic theology better than anybody else, and he was kind of the rising star of Islam in Iran. As he's in school, he starts having these dreams and these visions about Jesus, and so he decides to get a Bible, not to learn more about Jesus, but to figure out how to disprove everything about Jesus. And as he's reading his Bible and Jesus is revealing himself to him, the one feeling he comes into contact with that he never did when he was studying the Quran or or learning about Allah, and that was this intense feeling of love. This idea that Jesus will deliver you and rescue you. And so he reaches out to these Christian missionaries in Iran. And he says, you got to teach me this. i got to understand this better. I'm not, he wasn't interested in being a Christian. He was still going to be a Muslim. And about six months after the fact, after meeting with this Christian missionary, this Muslim imam who calls people to prayer on Fridays becomes a Christian and accepts Jesus. It was convicting for me because everything, if you watch the news long enough, you can be trained and conditioned to dislike and hate those people. You watch the news long enough, you can, we can live in fear of those people in the Middle East. We can live in fear of all those things. And Jesus is saying, well, if you're not going to go, I'll just do it myself. And he shows up in dreams and visions. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not you know, I'm guilty. I'm not going to the Middle East anytime soon. I'm not moving there. But this Muslim might ask the Christian missionary, one of the questions he asked him after he accepted Jesus, he said, why is it that you haven't told us about this? Why didn't you tell us? These people, we don't even know this stuff here. Why are you not telling us this? So I thought it was a little oversimplistic and kind of, there's reasons. They kill people that talk about Jesus. That's, that's, that's a reason. But what we've seen is that through these dreams and visions and through the people who have decided to go to Iran or to Syria or Turkey is that people are coming to faith in the Middle East faster than anywhere else in the world. In Iran, 7,000 Muslims become Christians every month. 7,000. And it starts from a point of Jesus stepping in and showing himself to them and delivering them. It comes to with, with a meeting, right? People praying for Jesus to show up in Muslims creates a meeting where Jesus does the work of salvation. Our job is just, is just to simply introduce them to him. Now, some of that's big, and it's too big for me. Like I said, I'm not moving to Syria tomorrow. I'm not going to the Middle East anytime soon. But there are people here. And my family, I am, my, my immediate family are the only Christians in my whole family. None of my dad's brothers or sisters are Christians. None of them know the Lord at all. And I have one uncle who I think he's read the Bible just to figure out how to make, do everything he can wrong. Right, he's looking for a guide of what not to do, and then he, and then he does it. And so, I was thinking about him. He, he kind of, growing up, he was the uncle that would come and get me and take me to do things, and we'd go do a lot of stuff, and we had a lot of fun, and we were really close. And then about four years ago, instead of me praying for my uncle as he's harassing me about my faith, I just decided that I was checking out. Just decided. I dismissed him. I treated him like the Samaritan woman. He wasn't worthy to hear about Jesus because I didn't want to have the conversation. He wasn't worthy to hear about Jesus because he's sinful, running out after things, and I don't want to be around that. 
And I felt this conviction over that. And it's like, I can call him right now, and he's probably going to hang up on me when I start talking about Jesus, but he can't hang up on a prayer. I can bring him to the feet of Jesus in prayer any time that I want to, if I'm just willing to do that. And so, this morning, there are two things that I want to leave you with. First one is, whatever you're holding on to, there's some of you, there's some folks in here who don't know Jesus at all. And he's standing in front of you saying, hey, here, here's living water. All you got to do is say yes. He doesn't care about what you've done. He doesn't care about anything in your past. All he's saying is, here it is, take it, yes or no. No more excuses, no more reasons why you can't or we can't, just an acceptance of He's here to deliver you the same way God delivered them in the Old Testament. Now you have a permanent deliverer that you don't need anybody else. He doesn't have to send any more judges, and he doesn't have to send anyone else to do anything. He sent the one who can restore all things. And so this morning, just ask, whatever that is, stop making the excuses. Step into it. And some of you are Christians, you're saying, I'm, I'm there, I accept Jesus, but you're not experiencing life abundantly. you got this thing that you're holding on to, or you've got that thing that you're holding on to. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, I know that, let it go. Take a bigger drink of this living water. Not that you're any more saved than you were before, but you experience life in a whole new way. You know, the Israelites, Moses and Aaron delivered them out of Egypt, but they weren't done being delivered once they got into the promised land. That was just the start. And so our acceptance of Jesus is just a start to a transforming life. The more that we take in this living water, the more transformation occurs in our lives and the more transformation occurs in our city. When we have people who have taken it all in and said, I'm going to go out and sell out for Jesus. The second thing is this idea of introducing people. We're not responsible for anybody's salvation. What we are responsible for is the introduction. We can introduce anyone to Jesus through prayer. We can bring them to the feet. We can bring them to the well, just like the Samaritan woman did, if we're willing to do that and take the time to pray for them. If I'm willing to pray for my uncle, who doesn't, doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, his life can be transformed. I'm not responsible for the outcome. I'm just responsible for the introduction. And this morning, we all, I'm sure of it, know somebody, even our family or close family relative, or the region in the world, that you're burdened for, that we, you all know someone who doesn't know who Jesus is. And so this morning, I'm going to ask for you to bring that person to, to the feet of Jesus in prayer. I'm going to ask Autumn and the band to come back up. We're going to go into ministry time. I'm here in a minute where um, just I'm going to ask you to stay seated. And as, we, as they sing over us, kind of reflect on a couple of things. What's limiting my, my experience with the Deliverer? And if you're there, then that's great. But you know somebody that's not. And so we just ask that the Lord would reveal that person's name, that he would place a burden for you to pray for them. And with this first song, then I'll come back up and invite the ministry teams up, and we'll go from there.